Okay, so to put this in context, right, Will, so you, uh, we were at some reviews together and the question of sort of East Coast, West Coast discourse came about. So can you give um, a rundown of your movements across the states? Because you graduated UO before I finished dissertation, I think. What year did you finish UO? I graduated in 2013. And then did you work for a while? Yeah, so I worked uh, in Portland for like Portland, Oregon for about a half year and with the same office moved to New York and then was there for a couple of years before actually leaving the country for a summer and then returning to Oregon for about two years and then went to the GSD. So had like, yeah, like four or five years between school. And you, the the travel abroad was through the, was it the SOM prize or something? What was the, you won something, no? No, that was uh, the Stewardson Keefe LeBrun grant. Right. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it's the New York Center for Architecture. Mm. And then that was, yeah, like a four-month stint in uh, throughout the Indian subcontinent. And was that building on what you had finished as a thesis in Oregon? Something linked to this, like green infrastructure, blue infrastructure? Yeah, sort of, yeah. I, I was trying to find actual formal objects, like architectural objects that did that hydrological work. I think at the University of Oregon, especially through the work of Brooke Muller, there were lots of conversations about how architecture could be organized around water, but I didn't really have an image in my mind of what that actually meant for a building. I I definitely understood it as a system, but not as a building. And so a lot of these types that I found in India, both old and new, started to give a form to that, which helped me a lot. So you, you waited a good four years between undergrad and grad school then? Yeah, yeah. I kind of had the idea of, <laughs> but I thought that I could somehow learn how to build in just a couple of years. And then I'd go back to grad school and then realize, oh my God, this is going to be a lifetime of learning. So I might as well go get my master's now rather than wait a long time. So yeah. Okay. So yeah, I've worked for a couple of years, um, started to dabble in, yeah, like timber construction and things like that that were starting to go on in Portland before before heading back to school. Okay, so you you have a bit of a slower pace of like um, culture shock. So to give context for mine, it was I finished at Auburn in 2009. And then I I can't even remember what the reason was, but I had happened to apply to grad school and it was the recession. So grad school seemed like a great choice at that point. Yeah. So I, I went straight into grad school after that and then worked for two years, like 2011 to 2000 or 2010 to 2012, I guess, and then came to Oregon. Yeah. But so I had, I mean, Auburn is, you know, Southeast, it's Alabama, but in terms of like educational structure, it's very similar to, I would say, an East Coast kind of vibe. There's some slight differences, I would say, but as a whole, it, it felt very similar in terms of the discourses like being studied, or the, you know, texts being studied. Then coming to Oregon, it was a complete shift, like very different realm of literature being studied. And the oddity was like what I encountered, and I, I don't know if this fits with your experience too, but each school or each geography seems to teach a discourse that's very specific and typically revolving around some what would be called seminal texts. But then the way it's taught isn't as if it's geography specific, but rather as if it is the discourse of architecture. Definitely. So each place you you go and then you're you're confronted by this discourse of architecture that's actually quite isolated in terms of its geography. So was this what was your shock in terms of going east or 
or west to east? Yeah, I think for me, uh, that shock happened in a different way. It happened through entering practice, not in the way that people typically think they Typically, you hear people talk about like, oh, I was in academia and then I went into the real world and realized that none of that stuff mattered anymore. And I think instead for me, hitting practice meant I was confronted with a different discourse right off the bat. And that was really confusing for a while until I started to understand that. Yeah, the discourse I had been a part of at the University of Oregon or perhaps the Pacific Northwest more generally was a very specific one that didn't necessarily explain to me what all these other people were up to and what their value systems were. And so that for a couple of years, I slowly started to get an understanding, usually through surfing the internet and figuring out what schools were producing, what kind of work. But I didn't really understand the theoretical underpinnings behind that work. I just saw the output. And so then I think going to, to use your phrase, like an East Coast school helped me start putting together, oh, that's why people do that. Mm. <laughs> like, why are people interested in those formal exploits? It's because there's this theoretical project going on that I had never heard of that they're working on. But but armed only with my Oregon theory, there was no meaning or purpose behind it. It just seemed like this kind of production for the sake of production when really there was a whole productive conversation going on. Whether or not you're interested in those questions, you know, is another thing. But, you know, they definitely were trying to get at something, I guess. Where, where do you find yourself now? Because I remember it took me, I mean, I'd say it took me, but it's still taking me time to untangle really that framework. Where I mean, do you find yourself swimming in relativism, contextualism, you know, this area works in this area, this area works in another area? Have you been able to synthesize things down or distill things down into a meaningful framework? Well, I, I don't quite know. I guess I'm starting to understand, maybe I'm not answering your question, but I think I'm starting to understand what Oregon and the Pacific Northwest is theoretically. I don't know if I exactly have it pinned down yet, like how I fit in all of that, but I would say I'm starting to realize how much the Pacific Northwest does, and this is perhaps a cliche, focus on building craft. It does focus on the technical of its systems. And then it focuses a lot on these kind of ideological pursuits that I tend to agree with, but there's kind of a missing gap often of how that takes form. Mm. Like what is, what's the form that that, what are the different ways that you can bring that into form? And what I found at Harvard and what it seems like a lot of other schools of that world focus on is the, the formal, at least in the architecture departments, they focus on like what internal to the discipline of architecture, what lineage of formal project are you a part of or interested in? But what that does in context is perhaps kind of up to you to decide and is discussed a little bit less. And so I guess if there is a place where I'm starting to synthesize for myself, I'm still very interested in some of those discourses that Oregon wants to be a part of. But increasingly, I keep wanting to get at, so what is that as a form? Like, how does that take shape? What is that as architecture very specifically? And I that's gotten me excited because, you know, there's this, this guy who has come through the University of Oregon a few times. He's from Germany. His name's David Cook. He had worked at Banish Architect and before, and he made this really great observation to me of the University of Oregon, to him, he said, is in a bubble. That said, it's a good bubble and it's a special bubble and it needs to be protected because it is 
producing or working through problems that get sidelined elsewhere. I still feel attached to those questions, but I kind of want to maybe go about them in a slightly different way now. So what are the, um, what's the big shift in terms of ideas that you encounter? I mean, if you, I mean, sustainability, inclusivity, that kind of stuff comes to mind with Oregon. Mm -hmm. But are there other important ideas within that bubble that you find? Well, maybe actually one of, I'd say one of the most connected ideas is perhaps the um, critical regionalism. I think that that's a very strong idea at the University of Oregon that is shared around the world even. But it's also kind of an outdated idea that seems to be going through kind of new iteration right now, which is really exciting. Yeah, but I think other than that, it definitely was kind of like social justice and yeah. and environmental issues. I think what was lacking while I was there was environmental justice, which seems to now be kind of a more contemporary focus of the school that I think in the realm of architecture, I know Harvard is not there yet. I think urban planning and landscape is looking at environmental justice, but I don't think architecture is. So again, Oregon is maybe more progressive or the Pacific Northwest is kind of on this progressive as a progressive lens, but doesn't really know how to bring it into form yet. And I, I kind of have a feeling that some of these other schools will catch up on the topics, but they'll be very invested in, well, what is the form of that going to take? So were you ever a modernist, like a, at UO, starting your, your first you know years? Were you ever um, influenced quite heavily by that realm? Actually, no. I think the beginning of... <laughs> to use like a heavy word, like the indoctrination at the University of Oregon, at least in Eugene, Oregon, was very, I wouldn't call it anti-modern, but it was a very specific vein of postmodern. of modernity was something to be very critical of. Mm. And, you know, Mies and Corbusier were brought up to point out their detriments, not brought up in a way to point out you know, how they opened up this whole new formal or spatial way of thinking. And so it actually took me a long time to come around and start fully understanding how radical the modernist project was and how interesting it is in that it was okay with tying agendas to form, which now, at least for the last couple of decades, has been like the biggest no-no. It's almost like the social agenda and form need to be separated, or at least say at a place like Harvard, a lot of professors have no interest in even addressing a social or environmental agenda with architecture specifically. Yeah, there's a, a few things to, to dig there, I would say. One is the, I guess another, I can link back to modernism because I'm, I'm actually curious about this one. It sounds like you had the opposite path that I had, where for me it was <clears throat> actually Corbusier and Mies were brought up as sort of idle, probably isn't the right word, but brought up in a very praiseworthy way in, in sort of Auburn and Cornell. And then coming to Oregon, it was, uh, I mean, we always discuss sort of the vulnerabilities of how they function and the gaps within their, their practices and so on. But in you know, coming to Oregon, for instance, like the Creer brothers, uh, you know, mentioned, you know, Leon Creer and Robert Creer and so forth. They're, right. they're mentioned in a way that I hadn't heard in any of the East Coast. And then things like mixed use and, you know, inclusivity, while they were topics that were discussed to some degree, was nowhere close to what it was being discussed like in, in the Pacific Northwest. So I had a reverse, yeah, a reverse sort of thing that, that you're describing. And I, honestly, it was an interesting one because I, I was able to throw off modernism in a way that was probably healthy but then there was a significant time period where i couldn't actually grasp then how do you deal with form 
Mm. You know, if you get rid of this form obsessed portion of architectural discourse, then you're left with this, what I think is the sort of one of the logical conclusions that comes out of postmodernism or sort of the anti-modern movement is that form essentially isn't so important. Right. And that really you're talking about program, you're talking about context, you're talking about socioeconomic factors and let it take whatever form it may. Right. And so for a period I was swimming in that and then it took a while to come back to this notion of, okay, how do you deal with right form, which is, I guess, where you're at now. No, I think that's that's a that's a great way to put it. And I, I think you're right that my experience was the inverse of, yeah. I started with the assumption that form was kind of a thing to not worry about as much or not get hung up on as much and instead focus on these, these other issues. Yeah. Well, even more, I think, further than that, too, it's like um, th- there is a, a weird path that you can follow, because if you th- talk about like the the background building, right, there's a lot of uh, even um, like uh, IMP has this interview It's IMP and a young Peter Eisenman, right when he's at the like he's become the head of the Urban Institute. But essentially, IMP is asked, like, uh, what cities of the world does he look up to? And one of them is Paris. And the reason why he looks up to Paris at that time period is because there's no standout architecture in it. It's all background buildings that are, you know, strongly done, but it's just background buildings. And so within, again, this Pacific Northwest, anti-modern, postmodern, whatever, it's probably not postmodern. It's essentially like an anti-modern thing. Mm-hmm. There is something about the background building and its critical use within cities that has validity. But then if you're teaching how to design background buildings, that's you know an oxymoron in itself because it's you know it shouldn't require that kind of effort yeah but the so another lens that i'm curious about did you encounter a dystopian vein within the east coast Hmm. you know modernism deals with utopianism and and taking the ideal trajectory of society did you encounter its opposite as a something that's praised Hmm. that's a hard one i think it's hard for me because i i think i'm maybe reconstructing this and i'm proposing this, but I have not experienced this. I think my experience on the East Coast came after the an original wave of focus on sustainability or environmental collapse mixed with parametricism. Hmm. And there was like a whole period of like five or 10 years where it's just biomorphic skyscrapers in a desert, you know, and like students are just kind of generating this odd, like futuristic dystopian work that I think when I got to the East Coast was experiencing the pushback of that. And so there was much more of a kind of indifference to those issues that was trying to make room for play and disciplinary focused work rather, you know, after these kind of non-disciplinary issues and non-disciplinary forms were, were emerging. And so I think part of the tough situation that I was in, but also a number of other people also trying to work through environmental problems is how do we strike a middle ground between these two of not being utopian or dystopian, but also not falling into this kind of blase, like stepping back and, oh, it'll get sorted out or do whatever form I want and then giving it to a consultant to make it considerate in a way. But no, I think honestly, if there is a dystopianism that I experienced, it probably just came in as a cynicism Mm. of architecture can't really address a problem of this scale. And so in a way, an argument for humility of assuming that architecture doesn't really play a role. And so focus on architectural problems instead and let regional planners or policymakers 
address that instead, which I would prefer to push back <laughs> against that stance and keep working through the problem of hmm. what role can architecture take in these problems. Yeah, the, it's an interesting time period, I guess. So again, give me the, the year you entered GSD. That's 2018. Okay, so we were 2009, I guess, when we started, 2010, I can't remember now, for Cornell. But the, the so the dystopian, it'd be curious to trace where this comes from. I have a feeling it's sort of this deconstructivist realm within architecture where it's so pushing back against formal composition in terms of something being appealing. Rather, you just let the thing you know collide and create odd juxtapositions and produce eclectic phenomena, however you want to put it. But so the, the dystopian thing, I think, is coming out of that in the sense of not caring about whether the forms you're creating are good or bad in actuality you may be pushing more towards the bad as something mm -hmm. that's appealing like a, a bad good i think eisenman yeah the ugly yeah in a way yeah but so the the odd the dystopian there's one realm in terms of that like aesthetics and, and i think there's a long legacy of of that that you should create sort of unnatural or unencountered and difficult to occupy types of spaces mm -hmm. like i think this is essentially the heart of a lot of what Eisenman talks about, right? Like with anti-phenomena and so forth, he's trying to put you in an uncomfortable space. And the thought behind it is that through that discomfort, you come to recognize a, a deeper humanity or a deeper intellectual sphere. There's one aspect of that. The other one, interestingly, was programmatic. So, and it had to do again with this collision of discomfort in a way. And and one of the projects that always was came to mind was a Bjark Ingels project. And it was a housing project. I can't remember. I want to say somewhere in, in Northern Europe, uh, but that's an easy guess. Um, but he, he essentially set, collides, for instance, a cozy housing condition with a dark garage condition. Right. Not in terms of like sequence, not like you just go through the garage and, and live in the uh, unit, but rather the unit would actually, uh, some of the units would directly be looking and interacting with this garage like sphere. And it wasn't talked about like how the garage could be pleasant or anything like that, rather quite the opposite, that somehow the collision of those two extremes was somehow interesting. And I think part of the interest was the sort of fetish of the architect as grand controller, the grand puppeteer, that they're not only manipulating form, but they're actually putting people into these uncomfortable situations. And if you don't uh, understand it, you're not understanding the grander poetic exercise that you're engaged in. So for us, actually, that that dystopian lineage, that was actually something we had to get rid of quite substantially too, because it's a strange, um, it had a strange weight because you couldn't make a bad choice. You know, you, you, you could make uh, pleasant experiences or unpleasant experiences. And in then there's there's no you don't have to discount the unpleasant ones. Now, you don't have to ones um, discount the ones that don't have uh, a richness of space or meaningful compositions. It was just everything was within your control. And you had that again, it gives power to the architect, which again, so the modernism one is another question that I, I keep coming back to. And I, I wonder, for instance, at, at Auburn, I don't think it was consciously discussed this way but modernism for instance if you're teaching modernism to first second third years is it seems like there's actually quite a useful component of it in that it takes away the roof and that you can simplify structures quite simply and everything is concrete and you can extrude things and complex forms just become simplified very easily the other one is you go down to the plan you know as a starting point and everything sort of just fragments almost parametrically off of that the other sort of lure of it that i don't think is quite discussed is so if modernism as 
as a whole, for me at least, did two things. One is it assumes that the modern human condition is somehow unique. And this is what uh, Jan Gehl, which I find the best critique of modernism is. He basically says modernism arose in a time where the assumption was that modern man is somehow different than pre-modern man. Mm -hmm. And that so we can discard history in order to... Actually, we need to discard history because history offers lessons to pre-modern man and we need lessons for modern man. And then you have the rise of the expert, which is the right. sort of the architect as, you know, dictator, whatever. So it, it does a few things. One is if you're a lazy student, which I don't think I was a good student in, in undergrad or grad, I, <laughs> I started becoming some things, you know, comparable to this in, in PhD, thanks to my advisor. But if you're a lazy student, then you don't need to study history. And if you're a student with a lot of vanity or, or ego, to use the pop cultural term, then you're immediately bolstered in this way, right? The, because you, you're part of this legacy of an architect dictator, and now you don't need to study history. Mm. You are now a conduit for good architecture. So that one, I remember, was one of the huge things of modernism that took a long time to shake off because you essentially give this bubble to a student that says you don't need to study the past. And again, I don't think this was Auburn's intention. It's just how I, as a poor student, sort of digested it. You don't need to study, and you just need to trust your own voice. So that one, I, I think, was the East Coast weight for me that took a long time to get rid of, where the West Coast is the exact opposite, right? It's sort of, or the Pacific Northwest. It argues that you need to be very careful about your voice and you need to take context into consideration. You need to take uh, community participation into consideration, sustainability, climate, social justice, and so forth. And in fact, you should diminish your voice as much as possible. So that's the trajectory I had. Yeah, and in a way, it's a little bit like anti-disciplinary. I think maybe that's one way to like summarize it. It's like, I think the Pacific Northwest is just critical of the discipline of or the position of the architect in general, or it questions it, which I think is good. I guess I'm still a little bit unsure when I would prefer to get that in my education, because I do think that in a way, by starting out from that kind of hater position, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it, it takes... <laughs> It takes us, it's a very hard lift to almost educate yourself on what the history of modern architecture is and to figure out what were these different discourses happening and how do they, hmm. how do they tie to the moment? Why were people into this? Why are people doing what they're doing right now? I think all of that was completely opaque to us. And I think somewhat results in the practice of architecture in the Pacific Northwest being also somewhat isolated hmm. and unable to link itself to other contemporary lineages or projects that are getting worked on. Um, but I'd agree, I think I was then shocked on the flip side going to Harvard Graduate School of Design of how, how much it's almost okay in that setting to just remain within disciplinary references mm. and to, I mean, well, now it's also, it's within acceptable, or it's of interest to not only accept modernism, but also ev everything after the Renaissance is basically all valid, interesting stuff. And you are always accepting your lineage of the discipline and then leveraging that towards your own contemporary work. And in a way, the Pacific Northwest doesn't do that, really. Like there is no disciplinary lineage that you're a part of. You're kind of a, you're either an academic or you're a practitioner of architecture. And then you'll almost choose instead regional references mm. or 
very uh, culturally specific histories to draw from to try to tie your architecture to, but you don't tie it to the discipline as much. And I think there's problems with both of those. I think in the case of the Pacific Northwest, and I think maybe this is the critique of critical regionalism just reiterated, of misappropriating cultural histories to try to validate a contemporary architecture that might have no real <laughs> meaningful connection whatsoever. And then in the case of the work that's disciplinary in its reference, there's kind of a double opacity to that, where the public doesn't understand what that is. And architects who aren't tied into the discipline, they don't even necessarily understand that. Mm. Like a 20-year-old me would not have understood what these references were that were generating contemporary architecture because I didn't even know about them, even though I was getting a degree in architecture. What's, what do you think about the um, formal language then in the Pacific Northwest, now that you can look on it with hindsight? Because there is something strange about both the East Coast and the Pacific Northwest producing fairly monocultural formal languages. Even though Pacific Northwest may not insist on something, you know, consciously, as you're saying, there's almost this, maybe it's the action of the bubble, right? That, that you actually um, mm -hmm. intuitively latch into what's acceptable and what's not, and, and you produce within the acceptable realm. And then the East Coast, it's almost, uh, I mean, the parametric one is a very good example. There's almost conscious fashion yeah. with an architecture that's replicated and even if you have substantial deviations it somehow falls within a dialect that you can summarize i'm sure somebody who's a scholar of new england or northeast architecture you could probably pinpoint each student project based upon the eras of you know totally fashionable architecture and then in the pacific northwest every project you see has an aesthetic that's very clearly a pacific northwest architecture yeah so what's your i mean what's your stance on it well well or or the other thing you can do is my boss at the the place I worked at in New York, he called the Pacific Northwest Provincial, which was <laughs> really great. And I, I thought about it that one practice, a totally valid practice in the provincial Pacific Northwest is simply to import one of these fashionable formal languages because no one locally is necessarily comfortable doing it yeah. or necessarily aware of it. And it can, it can seem totally totally radical. Um, even though, yeah, like you're saying, it could be very derivative if seen through the lens of the East Coast or or maybe even in Europe. But um, no, I think I've, I've been trying to think of how to talk about this. And maybe, maybe one way is, yeah, like a spatial or formal imagination. And I think in the Pacific Northwest, you do see a lot of repeats that kind of happen. Like I, and, and I think this also has a, comes to a much more political question of whose imagination is being foregrounded mm. and whose imagination in school is considered legitimate. Like what students ideas and who are those students and who are the professors teaching those students elevating acceptable ideas versus non-acceptable ideas and uh yeah there's definitely like a we like shed roofs and cabin and you know like cabin aesthetics and like often there's kind of like a throwback to kind of colonialized western united states folklore in an odd way that I think is starting to phase out now. Mm -hmm. I think there are definitely practices that fall into what I kind of think of as like the Bolin-Sawinski-Jackson like uh, realm of, you know, lots of wood, gentle sloping roofs, 
lots of glass, <laughs> yeah. very like public library, public school, um, acceptable. And then there's like another realm of people who they're definitely trying to do contemporary modern work, but they are somewhat a vestige, I think as well of like a not quite parametric idea, but of a kind of cellular breaking down the mass Mm. sort of idea where things become very pixelated Mm -hmm. and that's like another thing you see a lot of so it's kind of like colonial cabins pixelated masses and yeah gentle wooden roofs (laughs) lots of lots of that which you know none of those things are necessarily bad but i do think i i'm starting to question a lot why do those things keep showing up yeah and how come there aren't younger practitioners trying out different things or weird unexpected things what do you think? Why? What, what's the? Have you have you come to some sort of path for that? Well, I I mean I guess part of part of that I think is um, well I think a lot of the people working in the Pacific Northwest went to school in the Pacific Northwest and I think a lot of the schools in the Pacific Northwest and I'd be critical of the University of Oregon are pretty conservative when it comes to to the again those formal conversations like again form is kind of thought of as an afterthought or not it should not be a central concern rather programmatic issues uh, should be the central concern and so i think that can often lead the young professional or you know in the middle age practice professional to rely on formal tropes that they know are accepted and so you see those kind of just reifying again and again which Hmm. you know i i think i would then also i i'm starting to question whose cultural memories are also being foregrounded in education as generators of form as well Hmm. and i think like that's a that's a trickier one right i don't really know how to get my hands around that but i think particularly right now when we talk about in at least east coast schools of breaking the canon open to the non-normative you know who was an architect in 1950s was like a white straight male and i think the east coast schools are starting to try to break open that discourse and i understand that you know the pacific northwest is also trying to be very critical about that but i wonder if that's happening when it comes to form Mm. is kind of a question for me and i don't know and i haven't spoken with anyone about that but the fact that we keep seeing these same things showing up i think is a bit of a concern to me the one i mean i hadn't thought of this before you you just i mean i was thinking about this i guess when you were talking but the one thought that came to mind was so my one of the few places i've worked at in the u.s was a place called the distill studio which is now not operational but there's a fellow uh, our boss's name was joe haskett which is i think he's uh at union studio in in providence now but he was um going through he's a what like the greatest boss i've ever had first i should i should mention that the (laughs) the the second thing that i remember now is he was going through a practice that he thought was significant like showing me one of these books in the office you know saying look at this and you know going through the detailing and so forth and he was talking about them as a practice that tended to deviate from project to project and go into completely different tangents formally uh what they would pursue and then he was surprised when he looked through the book was that it actually wasn't as eclectic as he remembered is that they had started to produce something of a style that was distinctly theirs and he then looked at the book and he recognized that it was an it was sort of a second volume of this portfolio this firm's portfolio and the way he explained it was you know there's something odd that occurs when a firm starts to use the same contractors the same suppliers the same sort of 
building culture components to, again, to quote my advisor, Howard Davis, that you start to get a pattern, a style begin to emerge from that because you tend to use similar details, you tend to use similar components and to simplify the process, you may repeat things that you've done in previous projects. So his thought was, you know, the stairs started to look similar. So he probably had a contractor who he could reference and say, you know, we'll do the stair here like we did in house X and, you know, replicate it that way. But there may be something actually about the Pacific Northwest, given that it's also sort of an economic bubble, right? That it's sort of timber industry and also a practitioner bubble was quite obvious there. I think it's one is it's quite praiseworthy. The University of Oregon, I think, was one of the few institutions that I've actually seen have an active network to professional practice in the U.S. where students would actually get placed within, you know, firms in Portland and Seattle and so forth. But the other downside of it is students would get placed in firms in Portland and Seattle, meaning that they would then latch into the similar building cultures that established firms were already using. And they there may be like a regurgitative mechanism because of that. There may be, again, some deviations, but if you're using comparable contractors, comparable suppliers, comparable components, and you're used to detailing them the certain way that a handful of firms have done them in the Pacific Northwest, that that may actually be the thing that's producing this bubble, right? And I think what you're talking about is almost like the anthropology of style. Like, how do you mm-hmm. how do you deduce in a Sherlock Holmes kind of way, once you dive back into the Pacific Northwest, what the origin is? The East Coast, I find it's a bit easier because there it's, you can go through periods of when intellectuals had a very strong hand within certain institutions, right? And you can trace almost the impact that those people had as very vocalized, like this is the acceptable form of architecture. This is how we do architecture and you sort of replicate it. But it is a strange one. I mean, how one uh, East Coast, I find almost explicit and then what Pacific Northwest I find implicit, but then the same outcome occurs. Yeah, there's the same weight of a uh, of groupthink. Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, the people producing comparable things. Well, it was interesting because my actually my thesis advisor we got into a discussion where how did it happen? I think I was I was basically trying to understand what he thought was going on with form. And he was like, well, I think everyone ultimately is an architect because they're interested in form. And then everyone's just legitimizing it in different ways. Some people legitimize it through, you know, some rhetorical argument or they legitimize it through politics. And what he was inferring was that to him it was a little bit gross that people try to legitimize their formal project with a social agenda because to him that was abusing that social agenda to to say you know I want to make triangles for example but you know and I it makes sense to me that he thinks that but I don't think that explains the Pacific Northwest yeah or or the uh, professors or practitioners that I've known in the Pacific Northwest where I think like you're saying implicitly formal decisions are made because you're trying to build a building but they're not necessarily that's not the focus the focus really is these programmatic social or environmental issues and almost mapping those and getting them to work and then the form is kind of a byproduct of that and of course that can still be read and agreed with or disagreed with but it's not as self-aware of a production i think as compared to how self-aware those programmatic social and environmental flows are are very foregrounded and if right Hmm. if you aren't able to speak to those i mean professors at oregon will roast you 
they will just destroy you if you don't have certain social ecological flows like dialed in and explained explained well. Meanwhile, I think at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, you could skate by quite well without articulating that. But if you couldn't explain why the form was a certain way, yeah, you would then get roasted there. Yeah. Well, th- this was, I think, the one thing that I recall at, at Oregon was the, um, at least in the initial periods, there was, whenever I was in a critique, I was critiquing in sort of an East Coast method, which is form-based. Mm-hmm. And in Oregon, I was surprised the, um, you know, that when you start that sort of discussion, it typically kicked off at the, you know, in the East Coast and it just kept going. But in Oregon, it often hit sort of a blind wall. But what you're describing is the, you know, I think dead on is that the in the west coast the pacific northwest i keep saying west coast but like california is an entirely different animal it definitely is yeah but the in the pacific northwest it's it's a flipped like you're saying is that the um, things that i mean i mixed use i think i had heard before but i'd never really i'd never had it as part of a discussion for instance until coming to the pacific northwest yeah sustain and you'll often hear people say that students who graduate from the pacific northwest are really great people to have in your office. <laughs> and it's, I think that's because no matter the project, the graduate's brain is turned on to how do I make this thing work well? How do I make it enjoyable? How do I make it uh, functional, pleasing, connected program so it's not a dead space? At the same time, like, would you want that person, say, leading the new opera house for the city of Seattle and what that looks like on the waterfront? Then I think I don't quite know because I don't know if, like, we weren't really armed for that. We weren't really prepared for how do I create the object or the image that I'm perceiving across the bay. Hmm. At the same time, like, it makes sense to me why some people gripe about, say, a graduate from Harvard where... You know, if you're doing a small renovation on a low budget, it's really hard to do a complex formal project, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it, it really is about those like nuanced moments of if I flip the door this way, suddenly, you know, the whole place functions differently. That kind of attention, I think, yeah, I could see why that's difficult. Now, at the same time, if I'm about to do an opera house and I want my city to have an icon, I would I'd probably feel a little bit more comfortable. And, and so I, I think mm. that the challenge is... I'm, I'm starting to get tired of these camps. I don't really like talking about these camps in a way because, you know, I don't want myself or any other students or graduates or practitioners to be falling into these camps. I think the, the challenge is trying to get yeah, yeah. a middle ground. And I think that's the work we all get most excited about is when it's accomplishing both. Like it's legible formally but it's doing a lot of work in these different social and ecological flows and is accountable at, at both. And, and yeah, I think yeah. to me, that's the opportunity of, and this goes back to what that man, David Cook from Boehner said, he was like, I would much rather be the professor helping a student figure out form than having to help a student figure out how to care about social and environmental issues. And so in a way, I guess I feel a little bit, I think I feel like him. I'm a little bit more excited about starting with the hopes and dreams or agendas in a way and trying to bring those into form somehow or helping people along that way rather than trying to convince someone who doesn't care that they should start to care. Yeah, two things. One is that though you're, there may be some bias embedded into that because what you're preferring is the thing that you're first rooted in, right? The Sure, yeah as the starting point there may be that but the um, 
I mean, part of me thinks too is if you start with the form as the driver and and have the skill sets embedded within social justice and environmental justice and so forth, whether you may actually come up with solutions that the if if you had flipped it, meaning that if you have a person coming from GSD into Oregon, they may actually come up with different solutions and that's true. Interject new, but I think that I guess the opposite is is equally possible that you have Definitely. someone like yourself going to GSD and you may actually establish a, a different formal language that's that's beyond sort of a dialectical mm-hmm. like a deviation of dialect as opposed to well and i will say you know to give credit to all of the incredible peers that i met at harvard so many of the students are wanting to figure out how to use the formal tools they've learned and put them towards these issues like especially right now some of the work that students are doing is amazing and it is around social and it and increasingly environmental justice. I think right now the focus is on social justice, rightfully so, and figuring out very explicit formal moves that actually do work rather than just the rhetoric of it. Yeah. I think, which is exciting. Yeah, it's a, yeah. No, I, I, th- I think that's the, I don't know, maybe the Midwest has this figured out and we just, we, ju- we need one, one of your colleagues to, you know, study in <laughs> yeah. Ohio State, the Ohio State or something. Mm-hmm. The, the one thing that also came to mind was, again, part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you was to see if we could chew on this in a way that was constructive. I think the, because yeah. I, don't, I don't know the, it's sort of something that's just been stirring and, and I'm being able to be conscious of it more and more as the, time goes on and i guess in hindsight but the one thing that came to mind now when you're talking about it the um, so in in political science for instance there's this there's comparable moves within psychoanalysis and architecture as well but in, in political science there was a lot of hubris about what the field could achieve in the first half of the 20th century. So basically up till World War II, right, in terms of what they can predict. And if we do this, it'll create that, you know, very monocausal explanations of things or exaggerations of the causal weight of certain policies and so forth. And World War II, from as far as I can grasp it, within at least certain spheres of political science, was horrifying because of what took place there in terms of the Holocaust and and whatnot. And so there was this huge pushback within the discipline saying, oops, you know, we we messed that up uh, extremely bad and we've sort of hollowed ourselves out because of it. And so after World War II, within substantial periods or portions of political science, there's an effort to say, no, no, we're not going to make any conclusions or policy suggestions. We're just going to explain. Yeah. So it became this hyper descriptive moment. And then gradually they began to climb up to saying, okay, we can't take on the same type of ego and hubris that we had before, but we do have expertise here and we can make suggestions. We should just keep in mind that we're dealing with multi-causal systems, right? So to connect that to architecture and modernism, I'm wondering if what's actually taking place is, I'm sure somebody's written about this, I just haven't read it. What may have taken place is that actually the same current of sort of hollowing out or humbling occurs, but it fragments into two veins, East Coast and, and sort of what I'll call the Pacific Northwest. And I'm assuming those East Coast is tied to a certain network of discourse and Pacific Northwest is tied to a certain network of discourse. But so if you think about modernism, they thought that the architect had complete power to solve social problems and to also solve formal problems, right? To put formal dynamics into play and to put certain societal dynamics into play. What seems to have occurred in the Pacific Northwest is 
the architect as a form giver takes a step back, but the architect mm -hmm. as a social, a societal problem resolver is in this middle ground, right? They're assuming we can't, you know, there's a story of Corbusier who never saw his, uh, there's this hand sculpture, right, in Chandigarh, and he keeps insisting to the prime minister at the time through letters and so forth, um, you know, please complete this, please complete this. If you build it, world peace will reign through the world. Like, uh, if you build it, it will happen. They will come kind of thing. So the Pacific North West said, okay, that's not happening, right? It's not that you build this thing and world peace echoes through the world, but there is something that the architect as a shaper of the built environment can do to shape societal issues, to push societal issues in a certain way. The East Coast seems to have had the complete opposite in that the social thing has been a complete step back. They say, we don't have any control over that. Whereas the form issue, they've said, no, no, we actually still have expertise within this realm and we can, we have some capacity to shape things. And then I guess, I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but so the Pacific Northwest, the form thing is the thing that gets muted entirely, right? Yeah. But it may be just the legacy of something as strong as modernism, again, in that you're actually, there's the formal and the societal thing that you're exerting power over as a modernist and there's a silencing or a muting of both those realms but it's actually happening in two different geographies of of the states right well and then i think like so definitely and i think it was in the early 80s that michael hayes who, who teaches theory at the gsd he wrote his article on where he advocates for critical architecture and his idea was if you have the autonomy project over here and you have the contextual contingency project which maybe is a way of re-saying what you just said he was proposing that a critical project became this intermediary between the two Mm. But the problem with that, with how he articulated the critical project, is that architecture still remains in a way somewhat passive, and it's kind of just articulating what's going on, or it's just trying to show you, similar to what you were talking about uh, with political science, kind of like trying to explain without necessarily giving answers. It's not even necessarily asking questions, it's kind of just giving you more information to deal with. Mm. And interestingly, after that, uh, Sarah Whiting, who's now the dean there, she wrote an article somewhat critical of the critical project saying we don't just need criticality anymore. We need actual propositions mm -hmm. that try to do things. And I think she got hit with a bit of criticism because that also was timed with the kind of early 2000s, pre-2008 neoliberal explosion of architecture. And so I think a lot of people might have used that kind of reasoning as an excuse to engage with capital that she wasn't necessarily advocating for. And then we have, you know, the crash, we have sustainability kind of fail out or not fail out, but it, sustainability kind of does its thing. Parametricism does its thing. It's very positivist. And then we have the economic crash and suddenly things just kind of in that way bottom out. Mm. And so I think in a way, these two different worlds, say, you know, the, the two strands of what comes after modernity, like you're talking about, or after modernism, I think they've been trying to entangle now for some decades, but each time they entangle, it's framed in a very specific way. And it seems like each time they've kind of come undone. And I'm curious how they're going to entangle again. And it seems like we're right now for that to happen again, since it feels like we've, we're, we're in between right now. At least it feels to me that way. 
Well, I mean, you you may be one of the products of or forerunners of that kind of thing, right? Where you do get folks educated in both geographies and you start to weave a different kind of culture back to. Are you, are you planning on going back to Oregon eventually, or is there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the hope, and definitely would like to uh, teach to some degree. Yeah. Um, while trying to trying to build work, but yeah, I think I heard you know two people. Uh, I think it was John McMurray. He teaches at Tubman University in Michigan, and he's more of a theoretician than a practitioner. And he labeled it, think like an emergent new social project you know if modern modernism had a social project and it kind of yeah like you said split off into halves there seems to be this kind of emergent desire to bring that back in a more self-critical or self-aware way and i think another way i've been thinking about it is that these two terms like irony and sincerity some people in not in architecture, but I think maybe in art, have been using the term new sincerity. Like if we went through a, a long period of you had to be ironic or self-aware of what you were doing, you could never produce something and actually believe that it was mm. good or productive. You had to kind of like hedge your bets by being ironic. Mm. It's We're kind of getting to a point now where that irony or indifference or distance seems a little bit out of touch. Like it seems a little bit privileged. It feels a little bit like, why are you allowed to stay step back from all these problems that are very active in the world right now? And this goal of being able to be sincere, but not necessarily losing the self-awareness of irony. And again, kind of merging those two towards new production, I think. I, you, a lot of students are kind of stuck in this in between and we don't quite know how to talk about it, but you can kind of, see young people like trying to work their way through it. I mean, that's the the nature of this whole thing, right? We have no idea what the, um, I mean, it's something you know you want to chew on, but it's, it's um, yeah. we almost haven't been given the skill sets to, we have to merge what we've been taught in different geographies and then try to form a different kind of way of thinking. Definitely. You know that, I guess everything, comes around in a, in a loop in a way when you think about it but the there are sort of examples that come to mind for instance that in auburn university there's this uh, thing called the rural studio and and sam mockby yeah who was the founder of it was again i was a poor student in undergrad uh, and, and grad for sure but the what i recall from mockby was the few images that i remember that stuck in my head was him standing next to these huge paintings that he had done so he's this you know very intense soul i guess is the way to think of it but it was in terms of the paintings he was producing very i mean i want to say like abstract expressionist that kind of realm you can see the tie within that kind of aesthetic but then he's talking about architecture as a way of giving voice to the voiceless and you know as as empowering and not sort of through the veil of participatory urbanism or anything like that but it's more about you bring an expertise to a disenfranchised portion of the world and and you you help play a part in it you're not the part but you help play a part in uplifting that mm-hmm. you know folks like that I, I find a deep urge to go back and study just because there may be a way to grasp that maybe they were the folks who were trying to unify both of these geographies in a way. Yeah. Cedric Price may be another one. Cedric Price, I, I've gotten into a bit more recently, but he seems to also have this, you know, deep concern with urban issues. But then he also says, you know, produce architectures that we've never seen before, this kind of, you know, dual push in both realms. I do, I am curious about the one aspect that came to mind when you were discussing earlier about what portion of how your education was compared to mine. The one thing that I see as maybe a hard gap to 
overcome is that, for instance, I studied modernism, but consciously avoided everything else. You studied everything else except for modernism. <laughs> so yeah. that that may be actually a difficult bridge to get over. Yeah, because we, we're talking in different languages. If if you're if you're missing the very thing I've studied, and I've missed the very thing you've studied, you know, unless somebody's coming at it from a lens of you know like your current situation. But if it's you know undergrad, you know Will Smith who just finished undergrad, and and Jem who's just finished undergrad, we probably don't have a common language, even though we both studied architecture. Yeah, and I think that's very true. And the idea of where to start is I I can't really figure that out. Of the idea of like where to yeah. I did hear one great point at school. It was uh, Mark Lee, who is currently the department head of architecture. He made a comment, I think, about how he, maybe it was how they taught at ETH while he was there. I'm not quite sure. But it had something to do with if you're interested, if you're out in the world and you see something that's interesting to you, it's in the present or it's contemporary. And then to understand it, you unravel it and work backwards in time to figure out why it is that way. And then you want to understand why the beginnings of that were the way that they were. So you go back further, you go back further, you go back further. And he actually advocated for starting in the present in that reference and then working your way back mm. kind of cross across multiple histories rather than say starting with modernism which not only is temporally specific but also geographically specific to europe and then america and then you know the rest of the world which i think is a, is another big question of how do you center the history of architecture and obviously architecture as a discipline is inherently eurocentric but i'm, I'm I, I think that's also a question too like even just besides modernism like the lineage of modernism from the Enlightenment too. Like even if you start with the Enlightenment and work forward, since you know some people think of the Enlightenment and modernism is all one big, yeah, one big thing. I, I even struggle with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, th I think actually that that's probably that's the other lure of modernism that I, I had forgotten about is that the there's an omission of the actual cultural anchoring of it right it's not taught of exactly as a european tradition it's talking about you're engaged in a fundamentally human language that across cultures that this thing should be somehow applicable right the same thing i encountered actually there's this episode on um it's through design i want to say but i'm not sure but it's a, talking about danish design and the person talking about danish design again i was watching it a few weeks ago when i was mulling over the same you know the legacy of modernism in my own life and the way they were talking about it was that you know danish design is something very unique and they simplify things down so they're timeless and cross-cultural and so forth but then you think about it you see some things like if you see a product of danish design you know exactly when it's danish design mm. you know you know it's danish design just by spotting it so there's something obviously it's not quite cross-cultural the way we think about it. In fact, it's very geographically pinpointable. Mm -hmm. But this is a, a really mischievous one that you simplify things down to the point where they're, you know, pure function plus a little bit extra. You start with the, in architecture, the plan. You approach it as if, you know, you're this trained expert going through an exercise of design and form giving that you've been trained to do. Like there's something deeply difficult to disentangle yourself from from that realm. One thing um, to sort of go on a tangent, how has your vocabulary shifted 
since going to GSD? That's a good question. Yeah, I actually, um, before starting graduate school, Brooke Muller from the University of Oregon did warn me. He's like, if you come back <laughs> and you start using all of these stupid, big, high flute words just to sound smart, he's like, you're out. <laughs> yeah, how has my vocabulary changed? Obfuscation is the one I remember. Up <laughs> <laughs> palimpsest yeah. also, yeah. I think, I mean, just the fact that I'm using the word form or aesthetic or language, I think those are not words I would have used at the University of Oregon. And I wouldn't, I think, have even known exactly what they meant, mm. which probably sounds bizarre to some people because, you know, like Studio One is form, 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 form. And I really didn't know that. The joke at the GSD is that pedagogy is just on repeat, the word pedagogy is nonstop. But no, I mean, at the... So I, I get what you're getting at. At the same time, I think there's this interesting... You, you didn't get sucked into it? Well, I think there's an interesting thing going on in architecture right now, probably specific to the United States, where the simple and the dumb is very popular right now. Yeah. So generating form via complex algorithms is not, at least at the GSD, was not how people were interested in talking about form even. Mm. It was through metaphors of boxes or a bag of mm. apples or, you know, like using very literal metaphors in very simple ways to try to generate work with a certain notion that that is less opaque and more transparent or uh, easy to share with people. Perhaps outside of the discipline, I don't think any of these people were actually trying to figure out a way to talk about form with non hmm. non architects. But I think that was one of the one of the ideas. Hmm. Um, so I think again, I got there right after things were really complicated. So I think as sustainability, which at the GSD was called like the thermodynamic school of architecture like it was this train of thought of thermodynamism mm. things were very complicated it was like how do we do sustainability how do we do parametricism you know how do we deal with a digital project all very heavy complicated stuff which frankly like i don't even know how to keep my brain together to work through and so the next generation of young professors was kind of trying to get out of that complexity towards a bit more not simple, but an easier way of operating while still getting to unique outcomes to the point that sometimes a professor might even make fun of a student for sounding too complicated mm. as compared to simpler. So I think to your question, my while I think I've been exposed to a bunch of new language, I don't think there was a habit of, of using that language, you know, militantly. Mm. What about you? What was your experience? Yeah, so I, I in the um, sort of introduction of my dissertation, I, I thank Howard Davis from University of Oregon profusely for actually helping. I mean, helping isn't even the right word, but essentially getting rid of this weight of jargon. Yeah. The the fog of, of architectural lingo that, that a lot of, I think, history and theory up to a specific period of time functions around. I mean, even, I mean, we were, I remember reading texts that actually talked about, again, obfuscation, but that you should actually embed confusions into your text so that it could be read in multiple ways and not a singular one. <laughs> you know? Um, oh, my God. Wow. But th I mean, that's how architecture talks about, right? That you should embed multiple narratives into your building. Of course. Yeah, totally. 
but like in a text. So it's like, how do you how do you do that? So you essentially create structures that contradict one another and so on. And I don't even know anybody who does it, but I know we all talked about it. And the thing I found was actually I love the lingo. I mean, I loved reading Tafuri. Yeah. His, you know, towards a critique of architecture ideology. Yeah. Which is one of the densest readings I've still encountered. It's so difficult. (laughs) I mean, it's really great, but it's difficult. Like, my God. I remember um, post grad school at some point, I was like, I want to just produce an English translation of Tafuri, even though it's already in English. Like, I wanted to produce like paragraph by paragraph. I was I was an idiot and in one of the theory classes I signed up for the week where you had to create a synopsis of one of Tafuri's readings and it was like 45 pages yeah of just the densest text I've ever read and I managed to pop out the other end and produce a one page synopsis <laughs> and the PhD student even said like oh man like thank you because <laughs> I've never actually given this the time to figure out what he was trying to say so this is worth it but yeah very very difficult architectural writers are usually terrible well he I remember his original uh towards a critique of architecture ideology also doesn't have titles or subtitles right and they had to um or subheadings so they actually had to embed those into it afterwards to give it structure mm. but like I remember I mean I still grasp sort of the overall things that he had hinted at which I find actually quite fascinating but then the I think you could have simplified his writing quite drastically and still gotten it across it sort of was very cool to be confusing and and talking with multiple syllabic words that you don't you're not going to define for anybody and if you if you're not grasping it then you haven't read enough you know there's that kind of it took a long time to get over that yeah, I and I wonder too, like how much of that. It, it's interesting going back and reading modernists' writing. Yeah, because often it's brutal, it's clear, yeah, it's almost offensive, right? Like how much they just say this is how it is. And I wonder how much of that has to do with architecture dying in the seventies and eighties. Hmm. And another Michael Hayes book is called Architecture's Desire, where he deals with Eisenman, Hayda, Bernard Schumi, and someone else who is sad and depressed about architecture Mm. and it's it kind of it's this funny point where it's like architecture realizes it's not relevant in a way or the discipline of architecture the practice is always relevant but the discipline of architecture kind of loses its relevance to the world and i wonder how much that crazy language is just an attempt to make it seem heavy and weighty and important and Mm. 10 times as deep or 10 times as wide as it actually might be to kind of protect itself. Like who's the, who's the guy who wrote the black box that architecture is a black box. Oh, I can't remember. Uh, He was the guy who went to LA and drove around and he writes how great LA is in like the seventies. He's like a funny theoretician, but Mm. he, he writes this article about the black box of architecture that no one actually knows what the hell architecture is. And, you know, all these people are making claims about it's this or it's that. No one really knows if the average person asks you as an architect, so what is architecture compared to a building? You know, it's like impossible Mm. to describe necessarily. And he argues that architects are forever trying to protect the black box because none of us exactly know what's inside of it. And I think it's a good sign that increasingly architects aren't trying to hide behind that anymore. I think especially with 
the problems we face in the next hundred years and the desire to start interacting with the public and engaging the public so much more. I think that's a, a very exciting thing. For sure. I, that, that would be quite fascinating to trace with the birth of, of sort of, you know, I guess you could do text analysis and see where the most use of maximum syllables, you know, where it peaked in terms of architecture. <laughs> Probably peaked in like 1989. <laughs> I, but that, that, that could be a way of studying it. I, I have trouble believing the consciously trying to protect something. Again, it, it may be implicitly that that occurs, but I can't imagine mm. that kind of writing emerges from that domain it almost seems like there's a that period of writing as a whole is filled with complexity right there's layers and that you should just begin to talk without yeah without sort of giving a, a conscious structure to it. that seems to be embedded within film within writing within you know a lot of discourses across that realm i, I more see it as a product of that that just happens to coincide with sure you know, where architecture as a, you know, people's practices are suffering quite substantially and they move their efforts in a different direction. And that direction happens to be this hyper convoluted way of discussing stuff, right? Um, I, I see it more as a product of that likely, but there is something that is the byproduct of it, right? This insulation of, of the discipline. There's, yeah. Well, listen, listen to what's happening right here. I'm being that anti-architecture <laughs> Oregon person here and you're protecting it. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the frightening one of ideology, right? You have no idea what you're, if you're actually um, working in a, in a accurate and transparent manner, or if you're just functioning in a way that's defending something of your past, but right. I don't know. I, yeah. Well, to me, like that right there is perhaps the most exciting, terrifying, important thing to me when I think about education around environmental and social and economic justice. Yeah. Is that is that ideological problem, which is part of why Oregon and the Pacific Northwest is so fascinating to me because it didn't seem ideologically self-aware. Right. You know, I don't want to give up on the goals of certain ideologies or the centerings of different ideologies. And I think similar to maybe how you were talking about modernism splitting and you have people who go towards form or people who go towards program or culture. I think right now there's kind of this other thing happening where people are saying we're post-ideological now. And so some people like Valerio Olgiati, he writes like, yeah, we're post-ideological. So everyone has different ideologies now. There is no universal. So we should just do whatever we want because there's no way to appease anybody. Hmm. So you as an architect should just produce whatever it is you want to produce, make it interesting, and people can think what they will of it. And again, to me, that feels like just one split that you could go to me. Like the other idea is, can you have a plurality of perhaps competing or parallel ideologies that you allow to somehow, I don't know, converse or compare to one another? Maybe that's not even possible, but I think that's increasingly going to be important with the problems we face and how people are choosing to understand those problems holistically, not necessarily lining up with how other people see those problems holistically. There's a debate, I think, in the, I want to say 1973, but it's it's a, there's there's a video recording of it, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, between Foucault and Chomsky on the nature of like power and justice or something like this. But what you just described was essentially at the heart of that, at the heart of that debate. Is that the one where Chomsky tries to 
say something and Foucault does this thing where he just says like, I don't even want to address what you're talking about. I want to talk about the framing of the thing you're talking about. I think, I think that's in general, the, um, the, the Foucault thing, right? The, you talk about the system and, and, right, right, yeah. but I guess I had listened to that in a strange time because it was off of that period where I was still infatuated with like the Foucauldian type of speaking again, obfuscation, this and that. But I was also like reading Chomsky's works quite passionately. So I didn't have a quite a clear, hmm. it was a identity crisis sort of watching this uh, debate, I suppose. Yeah. But in, in that there's a moment where uh, Foucault essentially says what you just described that, it, you know, everybody has different worldviews and every system is out to protect itself. And regardless of what you think you're striving for, you're probably protecting an ideology or a system that you're a part of. Um, so even the pursuit of justice, mm -hmm. given that it's operating within a broader system of injustice, will never be able to achieve it because it'll just end up reinforcing being a, a rear guard rather than avant garde to, to link back to Tafuri. Mm -hmm. Chomsky says he actually disagrees with this. And he says, I do think there is some notion of justice and equity that we're striving towards that's beyond ideology. Yeah. And the way he talks about it, I think it's like the foundations of society that aren't muddled by the the waters of the surface uh, fluctuations that we you know talk about as worldviews and systems and so forth. But that's the yeah that that's what I thought of when you describe that because that seems to be relativistic hypercontextual is sort of the bridge off of Foucault. Yeah, and I think maybe this is a different conversation between the two of them, but I think I remember him also saying. Foucault against Chomsky that he risked just reifying some of those old systemic problems and whatever that new progressive like right. ideal proposed thing is, which then Chomsky's like, yeah, but we still got to try, basically. Another realm of this is we just had a reading on in an urban class, we had gone through a, a reading on participatory urbanism. And so for a long time, for instance, participatory urbanism was the obvious path to go that you have a urban project and you put it through participatory urbanism mechanisms and so on. There is always sort of this question mark lingering in the back of my mind of, you know, how participatory is it actually? Because there, there seems to be this effort where the urbanist sets up a framework wherein you're allowed to discuss and then the participation occurs within that framework. But this was the the what the article is talking about is that actually participatory urbanism has functioned as a way of for top down impositions that have layers of injustice and inequity directly and explicitly embedded into them. But it's a way of validation and a, a way of com the community to basically get absorbed into it. Right. And what they were arguing towards was more something called like insurgent planning. Hmm. And it's more like anarchistic in a way where the fundamental question that arises is whether the urbanist should exist. Right. And I, I think that's probably at the heart of it. And maybe I'm playing the other side of this coin now is the architect probably has to deal with this in the end is that if you talk about how to mobilize the built environment towards specific realms, maybe it's it, it seems unlikely that if the urbanist is going to face that question of whether they fundamentally have the capacity or the or whether they should with the right or the capacity to exert control over the urban fabric then the architect will likely face the same thing mm -hmm. yeah no I, I think that's that's definitely going to start happening and i think i'm starting to become aware of i guess and you know i wrestled with this in my thesis of like if a community says we want an environmental building the architect can respond having already made a lot of assumptions about what environmental means yeah that might or might not align with that community's idea of environmental altogether they might slip it past 
and you know maybe the public doesn't realize but i was trying to in my thesis kind of pull open these actually very different ideas of what environmental or sustainable architecture means and how they have completely different ideas of architecture's agency of where it addresses these issues whether functionally or aesthetically or otherwise Mm. And I, I, I have a feeling that, yeah, like you're saying, architects are going to become increasingly held responsible for those assumptions that they make, which are difficult to see sometimes because, again, if they're ideological ones, that architect might not even realize that they're operating within a massive assumption about what is appropriate in that condition. The interesting one, though, Will, I would say, and I'll let you go after this one, but to me, the, I mean, talking is particularly helpful in this regard, and it's more brainstorming than anything else. Yeah. But the, maybe it goes back to the question of the modernist project. And actually, if it has, as we're talking about here, fragmented into two camps that have actually muted and simultaneously muted, but taken a sort of middle position about one layer of it or muted one layer and taken a middle position about another layer, and then the other camp has muted and taken a middle position about opposing layers, then it seems likely that nobody's actually addressed properly the actual reaction to the modernist agenda. And I think there's something about that, at least autobiographically, for me to be able to disentangle this modernist legacy embedded within, you know, my undergraduate and graduate, and then the sort of environmental sustainability weight that's embedded within the PhD and to begin to see how those things collide, which it seems like what you're wrestling with at this moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fascinating experiment. I have no idea where it leads. And maybe that's like the weight of another ideology that I don't quite grasp (laughs) that that's being guided in that way. Yeah, I guess like to me, the, the thing that is exciting about the modern project is that the architect cares both about the social environmental agenda yeah. and the aesthetic and formal work that they're doing. Yeah. Like those things are both being held in the mind at one time. I mean, of course, the problem with the modern project is it's totally rationalist. It's centered on a very specific type of person and forgets everybody else. It forgets like 99% of the people in the world, <laughs> yeah. except like this very specific group. And so, you know, it it makes sense to me that interest after that would spread and bifurcate. Yeah. I guess the thing that I'm excited about is like, can you bring back that tendency of holding? Yeah, I think that's key. At the same time, those things, but not doing it in a way that's totalizing. That in a way keeps it uh, and allows it to be individual to you or specific to your own context. You, You know, a good academic will write a paper and they'll tell you right off the bat, this is who I am. This is what my bias is. This is my lens. This is my perspective. And they really clarify exactly how they're approaching yeah. the essay that you're about to engage in. And I feel like architecture can hold those things and in some way, ideally, really admit who is who's <laughs> being centered, I guess. You'd like that disclaimer before you enter into every building, right? This is the architect. This is my... St- <laughs> <laughs> or, Or in a way, like... Hold, hold on to those things and produce multiple projects mm. that aren't really worrying about centering just one person for good, right? Like instead of a universal centering, can it continue to recenter itself specific to a given project while still holding on to how do I formalize a specific agenda? How do I formalize a specific agenda? 
Yeah, the, the, a guy I talked to two interviews ago named Orhan Ayuja, he had two quotes, which I think are very helpful. He says, uh, one, just make mistakes. Like he advises students, just stop trying to be right. Just make some mistakes and let's talk about those. Mm-hmm. And the other one is, he said, I hold the right to revise and rethink my opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he'll write something. And sometimes in the middle of his writing, he'll like question, wait, I don't even believe what I'm writing here. So he'll go back and mm-hmm. revise it, but then he'll publish works and then go back and somebody will say, but you didn't say this in this article. It's like, yeah, I changed my mind. Mm-hmm. That's what it is, the right to change my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I find that's a quite interesting direction. I hope, I mean, it'd be curious to extend the discussion. I'm sure there's academics who've gone through this exact sort of chewing on the on the topics at hand. But I, I wish those disclaimers, I guess, that you're talking about were somehow embedded into education that allowed for you to see the gap that's not being addressed. But Exactly, yeah. I think, yeah, that's critical. Yeah, definitely. Which I think gets me really excited about all of the work that's going to be produced in the next couple of decades. I think increasingly people want to tie those agendas and form together. And the idea of who is being centered is being expanded Mm. a great deal, which means that's just a recipe for a proliferation of new kinds of projects that are going to take place. So, yeah. I think it's going to happen. It's going to be good. I, I guess the broader question is, are you then in a Western bubble and producing, you know? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we're talking about the East Coast. Yeah, East Coast West, and West um, Pacific. Yeah, Northwest. American coast. So this, this entire conversation has for sure been about the context of the United States. Definitely. Yeah. No, well, I, I, that's that's helpful. I, I mean, if we, if we have uh, anything else that comes to mind, let me know. But I think it's a... It's an interesting thing to chew on. I I wanted to record this just because I had never encountered this type of discussion in or this topic in either undergrad or grad or PhD. Right. And so the thought is just put out something that I as a student would have liked to listen to. Yeah, I think I've also been looking for this kind of conversation, but I think a lot of young designers are looking for this kind of conversation. So, um, yeah, I'm glad we're having it. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, Will. Thanks, Will.